Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We are, again, in a series uh, on Isaiah chapter 53 as we get ready uh, for the Easter season, Resurrection Sunday. And so this is a very important passage uh, as we look at And we talked last week, really, as an introduction of Isaiah 53, that this chapter will change your life. It's really the bedrock of our, our faith. And we're going to kind of look through that today. Uh, the title of the message is The Messianic Hope. And so as we look through that, I invite you to turn to Isaiah. Actually, we're going to be in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. This is the beginning, this is the real beginning of Isaiah 53, and I'll explain that in a moment. But it says here in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, in his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told him shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we are looking at, again, the, the, this passage, which is, the, again, the beginning of, uh, of Isaiah 53. Uh, but kind of giving a little background of that, I want to start our our attention this morning. i got a, just a couple pictures here. And again, the title of this section here is The Messianic Hope. There is a hope that we have in the Messiah, and that's the focus that we have uh, today. And so I want us to go to Israel today, to Qumran. Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And so if you go south of, of Jerusalem, a little bit southeast, and you'll come to the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth, which is about 1,400 feet below sea level. Uh, they get about one inch of, of rain a year, and so it's a very dry climate. And so it, we're up here at the northern end of the, of the Dead Sea, and that is called Qumran. Today, Qumran is actually an Arabic word, but uh, Kirbet Qumran, and that is uh, the place, at least the general area, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And so the story goes, the legend goes, that in 1947, really just uh, a few months before Israel became a state, 75 years ago, that Bedouin shepherds were herding their goats near this area, Kirbet Qumran, near, near these caves that you see, see there. And the story goes that one of the caves, uh, or one of the goats went into the cave, and so the, the shepherd was wanting to scare the goat out, or uh, depending on what version of the story you hear, maybe they were trying to uh, ward off an evil spirit that was in the cave. Nonetheless, they, they, what they did is they threw a rock in. They threw a rock into the cave, and they heard a smash. They heard something break. And so what they found was these clay jars that were in there. They found these clay jars, many clay jars, and they discovered that inside these clay jars, they thought it was maybe treasure. You know, maybe gold or jewels, coins, things like that. But they found just leather uh, and papyrus, different scraps, different manuscripts that they had there. And, of course, they didn't know what it was, didn't know what it was. So they actually brought it into Bethlehem to a guy by the name of Kondo. And he actually looked at that. And uh, they actually were going to sell it for shoe leather originally. Okay? But when they looked at it, the, Mr. Kondo noticed some of the writing was in Aramaic. And so that really caught his attention. And so he looked at it and said, well, there's something else here. Went to, make a long story, it went to a professor in Jerusalem named Dr. Sukunik. And voila, it's the find of the century. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And so what we have here is over 2,000-year-old scrolls that were written on, uh, in Hebrew, mostly in Hebrew, Aramaic, and there was even a few in Greek as well. Um, and uh, this was written probably by a sect, uh, a Jewish sect called the Essenes. Uh, there's somewhat of a mysterious group. We don't know tons about them, but what we do know was, is really from what they had written and a little bit from the works of Josephus, uh, Philo, and a few others uh, as well. And nonetheless, they were a sect of Jewish people that they were scribes. They viewed themselves as, um, uh, really, they viewed themselves as separate from the society around. They viewed the temple services and the priests as being very corrupt. And so they decided to live a monastic life out in the out in the, in the desert, out near the Dead Sea. And so they had their own community there. And uh, so they labored intensively. One of their main jobs was to uh, do a lot of studying and research and writing. And so they distanced themselves from the other society uh, in Israel. They were known for wearing white robes. They were known for doing purity, things like that. They also uh, believed in having what was known as the teacher of righteousness that would kind of come and he would be the one who would lead them, the true and purified Israel, over against the Romans. Uh, and they would have true victory, things like that. And then finally, Israel would have their second lease on life. Well, that didn't happen, of course, because in the year 63 to 73 AD, 66 to 73 AD was known as the Jewish Revolt. And that is when uh, the Jewish zealots rose up against the Romans. And, um, and of course, that didn't end well. The Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. And uh, so the, whatever group was left there, uh, the Romans came after them. The, probably the most famous story that came out of this is, going back a slide, if you go down this, the area, you've got Qumran, you go down here to Engedi, a little bit farther south is Masada. That area is where the last of the Jewish revolt, about a little over 960 uh, Jewish zealots uh, basically went up on top of Masada. This area, and they, that was the last stand, if you will, against the Romans. And so, anyways, that's just a little extra history for you today. But nonetheless, uh, the Essenes, these, this was a group that they had written diligently in these scrolls. So, what they found, though, when archaeologists, they found, they found 11 caves. There's actually been a 12th cave that, uh, about th three or four years ago, that supposedly is another place, but they haven't really found much in manuscripts, uh, per se. But nonetheless, they found that in these scrolls, there was, these are over 2,000-year-old scrolls, again, written in these languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and a little bit in Greek. And, uh, and out of that, there was about 900 uh, scrolls, like I said, they were there, but there was probably around 20,000 uh, also fragments. These are like, think of anything from like a business card size, uh, just different writings on it, kind of scatter things that had deteriorated. So there's, you had the 900 scrolls, but you also had about 20,000 different fragments as well. So think of a big jigsaw puzzle, and you can't find the cover of the box to figure out what you're trying to put together. Welcome to archaeology, okay? So that's kind of what's going on in that. Nonetheless, let's talk a little bit about this. So the Dead Sea Scrolls today, after they were discovered in 1947, and then in the early 1950s, eventually they were collected, and some are sold to different uh, owners throughout the world, but the vast majority of them are located in Jerusalem at what is known as the Israel Museum and the Shrine of the Book. My brother, Dan, and his wife, Emma, who live in Coon Rapids, Anyways, they are actually flying back uh, in a little bit from Israel. They, they were actually here today. They were actually at this place today. I, I'm a little jealous, okay? But uh, nonetheless, they got to see this place. So this is known as the Shrine of the Book. 
And you see here the white top of here is very similar to the top of the clay jars where the Dead Sea Scrolls were housed in. And so that's what this is, this is about here. So this is the shrine of the book again at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So inside here is the, where the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. And so out of many that were found uh, is the prominent the Isaiah Scroll. The Isaiah Scroll. And so this is not the actual, that's a facsimile, the real one. Uh, the real Isaiah scroll is actually hidden several feet below this uh, in safekeeping a couple of years. I think it was back in 2008. They actually did bring it up for researchers to examine it. But nonetheless, this is still a copy. But nonetheless, it gives you a good idea. This is about 54 sections of, of the book of Isaiah. Uh, almost, this is almost intact. Almost a complete Isaiah book of Isaiah that you're looking at right now. And so a couple of things had deteriorated. Nonetheless, it's very interesting. So it's interesting, though, of the Dead Sea Scrolls that only 23% of the Dead Sea Scrolls are actually portions of the Bible. There were other things, such as commentaries. There were other writings. There was the Book of the Community Rule. How the, basically, it's kind of like the owner's manual, how the Essenes would function and work together as a society. But about 23% of the Dead Sea Scrolls are actually part, portions of the Bible. Okay, so it's kind of interesting when you look at that. And what's important to understand is this, that almost every book of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament, is represented except the book of Esther, which we covered on Wednesday night. Okay, and so that's very important to know. Uh, it doesn't mean that the book of Esther was never written at that time. It's just for whatever reason it wasn't included or we just don't know. That's in 2,000 years ago. So, but what's really interesting, I got a question for you. Out of all the books of the Old Testament and the writings of the Essenes, they're copying diligently of the books of the Old Testament. Which books of the Old Testament do you think they had the most copies of? Now, before you answer that, I want you to think about this. You would today have a Bible in a book form today. And that's pretty much how you've known this your whole life. Okay, And for really several hundred years, this is how... We have known this. Now, back during the time, actually during the time even of the early church, time of the Apostle Paul, the disciples, go back even to the time of Isaiah. How did they handle the Bible at that time? Was it a book? No, it was scrolls, individual scrolls. So there wasn't like a complete, people didn't walk around with tons of scrolls on their arms. Hey, where's the book of Nahum? It's somewhere here. You know, it wasn't like that, okay? So they had individual scrolls that was read at different times. Okay, that's just how it operated back then. And so... But here's the thing. When you look at all the work that was done back then, how many copies of different books of the Old Testament, which books were, do you think were the most popular, where they had the most copies of? Anyone want to take a guess? The Torah? Uh, which part? Which, which specific book of the Bible? Which specific? Isaiah. Isaiah. 20 copies of the book of Isaiah were discovered. In a very close second, guess what the other book Another book was the book of Deuteronomy. And then the third, the third book of the Bible that they also found the most copies of was the Psalms. Okay? Believe it or not, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's actually an extra psalm that we don't have today for, for whatever reason. There's slight variations. But I will say this. Regardless of the, when, the, when scribes and researchers looked and studied carefully the writings of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, by the way, this scroll that you're seeing here, the real one at least, was written about 150 years before Jesus was here. That's how old this is. Okay? And that is, that's a very important point, and we'll, and we'll discuss that in a second. 
Okay? And so, but when, when scholars compared these, the manuscripts of that time, by the way, what is a manuscript? Don't let that word scare you. Manuscript literally means handwritten. That's what it literally means, okay? So these handwritten documents, when they compared it to the Bible that we have today, guess what? It basically matched up. There's a couple variations, a couple small, very insignificant differences, to be honest with you. But in, in a sense, it's the same story. It's the same message. We have confidence in a sure word of God. It's, it's, it's very amazing when you think about that. Let me just share this with you. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, again, this is be- written before the time of Jesus, at least 100 years before Jesus. The earliest copy of the complete scripture that we had of, of antiquity was the Aleppo Codex, which is written about 900 AD, or the Leningrad Codex. Codex means a book, okay? It was kind of like a complete compiling, that's what it means. And you had the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex, and that was around the year 1000 or 900, give or take. So in other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls predates that by at least a thousand years. And guess what? Everything, the message lines up. That's amazing. In other words, we're still talking about the same Jesus, the same Jewish people, okay? Nothing is, nothing's really changed. A couple small variations, but nonetheless, it's the same message. Very important as we see that. Okay, so why do I say that here? Okay, uh, because like I said, there are some, and we talked about this last week. Remember that a Jewish response to uh, the Isaiah 53, the passage that we're studying right now, a lot, there's been a, some pushback on that on a Christian interpretation. We look at this and we say, man, this is, this is Jesus. We see Jesus here. But again, in a Jewish perspective, they believe Jesus is a Gentile God. Okay, the New Testament is a Gentile book. That's kind of what we, they think. To be honest with you, that's what a lot of Christians think too. Okay? But nonetheless, here's the thing. There were some, it's a small minority, but there are some that said over the past centuries that Isaiah 53 was inserted by Christians to promote or build up Jesus. It was kind of like their proof of the pudding, so to speak. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls put all that to rest, said, no, Isaiah 53 was found 150 years before Jesus. That's important, okay? So in other words, what we have here is, a, is an accurate document. So this should encourage our faith and strengthen our faith in, in, this, in the prophecy that we have here. Okay, so this is important. I mentioned here that out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of the portions of the book of the Bible, the most popular books were Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalms. Why is that important here? Okay? Because we're going to find out something. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 24. And I think this is going to be amazing. It, it, every time I look at this, it amazes me. Look at Luke, chapter 24. And we're going to look at verse, starting in verse 44. So in this passage, Jesus had risen from the dead. He is uh, on the road to Emmaus. He reveals himself, opens his hands, shows himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he says, again, fools, slow of hearts to believe that the prophets have shown you. And then now he's with his other disciples, okay, back in Jerusalem. And look at me with me in Luke 24, verse 44, beginning there. And he, Jesus, said unto them, unto his disciples, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was with you, which all things must be fulfilled. Prophecy. Messianic prophecy, which were written, look carefully, in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy, in the prophets, 
Isaiah, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. This was their aha moment. And what is the point of these passages, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the Psalms specifically? I mean, the other prophets mention things too, but specifically those books. What's the point of that? What was Jesus getting to? Look with me in verse 46. And said unto them, Jesus said to them, Thus is it written, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. This is what this is about, folks. And I want you to get very excited about this and leave today confident in the prophecy of the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, how do you show that Jesus would die and be risen again? The resurrection. It goes back to prophecies years, centuries. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus was here on earth. Okay? And we're going to get to, eventually we're going to get to the end of Isaiah 53, and we're going to see that the resurrection is there in Isaiah 53. This is something that's prophesied. Very important. I say all that to say this. If you notice again in verse 44, if you notice how Jesus mentions these, these uh, parts of the, of, the, of, of the scriptures, he said the, things, the prophecies which are fulfilled, written in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, and then in the prophets, that is the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im means prophets, and then the Psalms, that's the Ketuvim, the writings. I have here in my hands, here is a Hebrew-English Old Testament, the Tanakh. If you ever hear the word Tanakh, you're referring to the Hebrew Bible, okay? Known as, we refer to the Old Testament. But if you notice, our Old Testament is laid out a little bit differently than a Hebrew Bible is. Why? You start in the beginning with the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Ruth. You're paying attention, okay? <laughs> and Deuteronomy, all right? What is so significant about Deuteronomy? It mentions in Deuteronomy 18 that there will become a prophet, there will rise a prophet like unto Moses. Him shall you hear, okay? All right? I wish we could park all day just on that. That's amazing. But you have, that's the, the Torah. That's the books of Moses. Deuteronomy. And then the next part of the scriptures here, it goes eventually to what is called the Nevi'im, which are the prophets. And so in the middle of the, the Hebrew Bible, you will find places like Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, for example. The minor prophets are there. Okay? And again, they're pointing again to the Messiah. At the end of the, of the Hebrew Bible, you will find the Ketuvim, which are the writings. These are places like Job, uh, places like uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and actually, the Hebrew Bible ends. Our Hebrew Bible, or our Old Testament, ends in Malachi. In the Jewish Bible, it ends in Second Chronicles. Okay, so it's laid out differently. It's the same Bible, same scriptures, just rearranged differently. But there's an order. By the way, that reflects exactly what Jesus is saying here. In other words, the Hebrew Bible that is used today amongst the Jewish people is the same one that Jesus referred to here. It doesn't mean our Bible's wrong. Don't don't get scared. Okay, our Bible's fine. <laughs> but look at this. It says here. Jesus said, which were written in the law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So that is, that's a very big deal on how the Old Testament is arranged. So with that in mind, what is the big message that we have here of this? What Jesus is saying here on this day on the road to Emmaus and to his disciples is this, that he is the messianic hope. Jesus is the messianic hope, the hope of, the, of a Messiah, a Messiah that was promised to Adam and Eve. That one day the serpent's head will be crushed. 
Okay, that there will be a there will be a prophet like unto Moses, and we go through many of the different Psalms, Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's all kinds of prophecies that are mentioned where he would be born, uh, how he would die, all these things, even his resurrection. All those things are in the Old Testament. So this is very important. In other words, here Jesus here revealed to his disciples that he is the messianic hope. So it's very important as we see that. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk now. We're going back to Isaiah chapter 52. And uh, before we get into that, I want to say, going back to the Essenes, the Jewish expectation of, of a Messiah. What is a Messiah? Messiah means anointed. Uh, when we say the word Jesus Christ, the word Christ, Christos, means anointed. Basically, it is the Greek, it's from the Greek, but nonetheless, this is where we get the word Messiah. Messiah, Christ, means the same thing. Again, I shared last week, and this, is, and this is true, there are some people who believe when you say Jesus Christ, that means Jesus was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Okay? He was from the Christ family. All right? There's some that think that way, but that's not. It's simply his title. That's his title, not his last name. Okay? Very important that we need to know that. Uh, there's some confusion on that. But in other words, Christ simply means Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. It's the same meaning. Okay, very simple. Okay, but for the Jewish people, what exactly is the Messiah? They believe, first of all, that he is a man, not God or a God-man or a demigod, anything like that, that simply he is a man. And that the Messiah would come at the end of days and will do a couple things. That the Messiah, when he comes, he will raise the dead. He will perform miracles. Okay, he will raise the dead. Number two, he'll be victorious over Israel's enemies. He will reign as king in Jerusalem. And number four, he will end war and bring peace. And if you ask uh, religious Jews today, even, if you ask, well, what is the Messiah? Very, they're going to give very similar answers to what we just shared. Their Messiah is not a God. All right. We believe the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, Jesus is God, very God, man, very man. But in a Jewish perspective, they do not believe that. They believe that the Messiah is not that. He is God. We're gonna, we're, as we're going to go through Isaiah 53, we're going to find out that for sure that the Messiah is deity. We're going to find that. Okay, But nonetheless, during the time of the Essenes, this is around the time of Jesus and even before that, that there, during the 400 silent years, between the time of, of the prophets of Malachi and the time of Matthew, when Matthew, you got generally around 400 years, we call it the silent years, and it just simply means that God did not speak uh, to his people at that time. There was no outright communication, but a lot of things were happening during that time. For example, the formation of the Pharisees, the synagogues, they really flourished during this time uh, in Jewish society, especially in Israel. That's some, some things that happened. But it, along with that, there was also a great messianic expectation as well. There was a waiting for a Messiah. And it was actually hoped that maybe Jesus or others could fulfill that. They would defeat uh, Rome, for example. Rome was the new bully on the street. Who would defeat Rome? We need a Messiah. We need the Messiah now. One that will bring peace. One that will raise the dead, perform miracles. All these things. And so... This highlights the messianic expectation of the Essenes. There would be a war with Rome, a vicious and violent war with Rome by the teacher of righteousness. But when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus died on the cross. In a sense, he became a disappointment to the Jewish people that were there. I remember, and I think I've shared this story with you before, 
A few years ago, I had the chance to spend about two and a half hours with an Orthodox rabbi uh, in our museum down in Tennessee. And uh, we were talking about Israel and about the Jewish people. And of course, along the way, we talked about the Messiah. And his comment was, and this is, um, I'll be honest with you, from an Orthodox perspective, it's a very generous comment. But nonetheless, this rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo is his name. Rabbi Shlomo, he said this, that, uh, you know, Jesus, he was a revolutionary. There was a lot of fighting, bickering groups within the Jewish world during the time of the first century, um, such as the Essenes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians. There's other groups that were around. Jesus was one of those groups, he said, and he was a failed revolutionist. He was a good person. He was a good moral teacher, but uh, he died and that's it. That's it. I'll give him credit. He actually admitted Jesus was Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish people who, again, I told you last week about my friend Harry. He said, yeah, when Jesus became Christian, think about that for a second. Did Jesus ever become a Christian? <laughs> no, think about that. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, I, I like what um, Arnold Fruchtebaum said. He wrote Israelogies, a few other books like that. Uh, he was going somewhere, and someone had asked him uh, across the border about his Jewishness, and, said, and he, they knew he was a, a believer in Jesus. So, well, when did or uh, how did you convert? He says, "I converted from being a sinner." Think about that. When you convert, you're converted from being a sinner to being saved. Okay, you're not sa- you're not being converted from Jewish to Christian and all that. Okay, it's it's a different different thing. Come on Wednesday nights, we'll discuss that a little bit deeper. Okay. But nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is this, that in Jesus' time, Jesus was a disappointment. He did not meet those expectations of one that would take over Rome, that he would, uh, he would reign as king in Jerusalem, things like that. So that, that was the general atmosphere of that time. However, praise God, many did believe on Jesus. And the gospel went forth, clearly, because of that and the power of the resurrection. So when we look now at Isaiah 53 and we look at the suffering servant, uh, there is a minority view amongst Jewish, uh, Jewish scholars, if you will, of two messiahs. There is a messiah ben Joseph who would suffer just like Joseph suffered. And then there would be a messiah ben David. Messiah ben David it would be messiah like King David. And that's their idea. A Jewish idea is a messiah is like King David, one who's going to rule, reign, and bring in peace. And wars, things like that, okay? And so there is one view, and that again, it's a minority view, but maybe that helps understand. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that does talk about the Messiah coming to rule and reign and bringing peace to this earth. The lion will they lay down his lamb with the lamb, okay? We find that earlier on in the book of Isaiah, okay? But we also see, as in this passage here, that the Messiah also suffers. So how do you reconcile the both? Or how do you reconcile them? So in other words, Jesus fulfills both. At Jesus' first coming, Jesus is rejected. At his second coming, Jesus is accepted. Okay? And so here's the point, and all, uh, even Jewish scholars would agree about this. There is only one true Messiah. This is something very important that we start out today. There is only one true Messiah. There's been a lot of so-called messiahs throughout the ages. I have a book in my office, 50 Jewish messiahs, and that's just skimming the surface. Those are just the famous ones, okay? There was a lot of messiahs that have come. There's even one today claiming to be a messiah in, in one part of Israel today. But nonetheless, 
they do not meet them, fulfill the requirements of that. So there's a lot of confusion that, but there is only one Messiah. We believe by scripture that Jesus fulfills them both. So what we see on this, we got to begin with the servant Psalm. Okay. So the servant Psalm here, or the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. So it's a little bit different. Okay. Now, back when we were looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls earlier, one thing, if you notice carefully, there are not any chapter and verse divisions. Okay, that didn't happen until about 500 years ago. Okay, and so now those are very helpful, but in that time, it was done more by paragraphs. And if you look carefully at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is, I'm going to put my nerd hat on for a second, just bear with me because I got to get it on my system. Okay, that when you look at the paragraph sections of how the parts are divided upon the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll actually discover that this section here begins with chapter 52, verse 7. Look at that verse really care, careful with me. It's a familiar verse. You'll know it right away when we start it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good and publisheth salvation and saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. So here the prophet among the other prophets as well. This is, they're talking about deliverance from captivity from Babylon and Persia. But nonetheless, there is good news coming. When the Messiah comes, he will come to Zion with salvation. And they will say, thy God reigneth. And here's the idea. He's coming to publish good tidings of peace. Here's the point. When the king reigns, there will be peace. There will be shalom. How will that peace happen? That peace happens not just physically on the land, amongst people and countries and nations, but it starts even more personally as well. There is going to come a servant. The Bible talks about, in Isaiah, four servant songs. There's four, the way the servant or the Messiah is presented here. It's, he's presented as a, he's introduced his work, his obedience, and then now we see here in Isaiah 52 that he is going to suffer and triumph. And we're going to get a taste of that right now. Okay, so when we talk about the prophecies of the scriptures, understand what was the role of the prophet? The prophet had two major, Isaiah, for example, had two major jobs. Prophecy is this, proclaiming God's truth and predicting God's plan. Okay, that's, that's the role of a prophet, predicting God, or excuse me, proclaiming God's truth and predicting God's plan. And so in writing out this, the book of Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53, that the great hope of the Hebrew Bible is found in the Messiah. That's what this is pointing to here. I encourage this as well as we look in this passage, and I mentioned this quote last week from David Cooper, that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest it result in nonsense. So in other words, we're going to try to look as much as we can at the plain meaning of the text. Just take it at face value. What does the Bible say? And very important as we do that. So let's talk very briefly about the importance of messianic prediction or why prophecy. This is from Michael Rydelnik, who is a noted Hebrew scholar. Uh, Rydelnik says this, that the, the messianic prophecies are important. Why? Because, number one, it's the best way to explain the evidence of Scripture. I like what one commentator says this. The Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. That's a nutshell. What does it mean? When we read the Bible, as you see the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as predicting the coming of Messiah in, in, in the New Testament, that's revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So the Messiah is predicted in the New Testament, the Messiah is revealed. Okay? Uh, some people say that in the Old Testament, Christ is concealed. In the New Testament, he is revealed. 
but I don't think he's so much concealed. He's just predicted, okay? Don't try to overthink it, all right? Take it as face value. Another thing is this, it provides a special apologetic for Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, it's important to know Messianic prophecy. Why? Without the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, it's impossible to identify Jesus as the Messiah. Again, how do you, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We mentioned that at Christmas time. Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives at the, on Palm Sunday, riding a donkey. He dies on a cross. He rises again from the, from the grave the third day. That's all great. It's a great story. But did you know that they have a basically a pretext? That's the Old Testament. It's the prophecies. Those events that I just mentioned were prophecies hundreds of years before that actually happened. Isn't that important to know? Absolutely. The Old Testament, folks, is a wealth of, of wisdom and knowledge. And it should help us in understanding this, that the Messiah we have is not just some story that all of a sudden out of nowhere, here comes Jesus and saves the world from their sin. This was planned from the beginning, from God's plan, from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. And it's mentioned here through the prophets and revealed in Jesus Christ. It all goes together. This is one complete story, folks. One, from beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, it's one story focused on one individual, and that's Jesus the Messiah. And he is our messianic hope. Very important to understand this. Okay? It also, prophecy enables followers to uh, followers of Jesus to have confidence in the scriptures. By recognizing these prophecies, it will strengthen the believer that this is a unified, inspired book that reveals Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, Rydalinic also says that messianic prophecy is foundational for identifying Jesus as the true Messiah. How do we know that? Jesus himself used messianic prophecies as proof that he was the Messiah. And yes. uh, remember this, when John the Baptist was jailed and he was going to suffer his fate under Herod, remember he sends his disciples to Jesus and they said, are, Jesus, are thou who should come or do we look for another? Are you really the Messiah? What Jesus said, tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Guess what? That's Isaiah. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah. And for John, who's in prison awaiting his fate, that must have encouraged him greatly. That his work as a voice in the wilderness was not in vain. That he came to do that will. Uh, very amazing as we see that. So with that, we understand that Jesus is the messianic hope. Now with a few minutes we have remaining, I want us to look here at these verses. That's all kind of setting up the stage. I know it's taken us a while just to get to this. But again, this is very important that we understand why we are talking about prophecy in the in, at, at all. A lot of times we talk about prophecy. Okay, when's Jesus coming back? Well, let's talk about when Jesus first came. And we're going to talk about this. Very important. Again, let's look, look at Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. This is, again, the official start of Isaiah 53. And if you will, it's kind of like a, uh, there's actually five divisions in Isaiah 53, beginning here. It says again, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Here we see the servant. The servant is mentioned here. And this is a word that, by the way, can be used for other people. It can be used for the prophet. It actually, in other passages, uh, talks about Israel, my servant. Uh, there's actually a Jewish objection that Isaiah 53 is talking about Israel, not a Messiah. And the reason is because other passages in Isaiah mention Israel as a servant. The big difference is this here is talking about an individual. This is talking about one person. That's the difference. Nonetheless, he says here, my servant, this is referring to the Messiah, shall deal prudently or prosperously. Now, when you think about that, isn't that an oxymoron? 
Have you ever thought about a servant or a slave that's prosperous? A slave has nothing. A servant has nothing that belongs to him. All right? He's, he's in the possession of his owner, his master. And so here's the idea. The servant or the slave of the Lord is a messianic title. This is one who comes to do the will of the Lord. That's exactly what Jesus did. I came not to, serve, uh, to, uh, to be served, but to serve. Okay? This is the idea. Jesus is that servant. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But he came to do the will of him that sent him. He came to do the will of the Lord. It also says here in this verse that the servant will be exalted and extolled, be very high. Okay? And so this is the idea that this, this announcement here is this, that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, will, yes, he will be prosperous and he will be put above everyone else. He will be king of, over all and Lord over all. This announcement here actually frames Isaiah 53. This servant will one day be exalted. He is exalted. He's above all. No ruler can out be prosperous, okay? He is the richest ruler. He's the prosperous ruler. He's the wisest ruler, however you want to say it. But look with me at Isaiah 53, verse 12, the last this. So we're looking at the beginning and the end of Isaiah 53. Watch this. This is amazing. This forms a frame. The idea that a servant is going to be exalted, that Christ will do this, or that Christ will be exalted. Look with me at the end of 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he had poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Very, at the very beginning, it says, He will divide a portion with the great, divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, because of his work, he will also inherit riches. He will gain greatness as well. This is the idea. This kind of frames what's going to happen in the middle. But here's the thing. We meet right away that this servant who is exalted, that, by the way, Paul writes very similar in the book of Philippians, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. Remember, Jesus came as a servant. God exalted the servant and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every name uh, should con- or every tongue should confess, every knee should bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, that's very important as we see this here. Okay? And so that frames us, and that leads us to the next thing. Servant is exalted, and now the servant is humiliated. Verse 14 of chapter 52. And many were astonished at thee, and his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So this exalted servant is now humiliated. Again, this is not talking about a nation, Israel. This is talking about an individual. This is very important. Many were astonished at, his, at thee, and his visage okay, was so marred. This is basically how he looked, was so marred more than any man. In his form, that's his body more than sons of men. And of course, if we go quickly in our minds to the cross, when Jesus was beaten, when he was scourged, when he was spat upon, his beard plucked from him, all these terrible things that happened to our Savior as he went to the cross, again, he was unrecognizable. Uh, the idea that... Um, his visage was so marred. The word marred in Hebrew has the idea of being disfigured. Okay? And so he was almost unrecognizable as a human being. It was a vicious humiliation. And by the way, this is a servant that was not what Israel expected. I would say this. You find out here that the servant was rejected just like the prophets were. The prophets were also rejected. Even Isaiah Remember, they said, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here, here am I, send me. But then what does God say to Isaiah? You're going to go to a people who don't want to hear you. 
You're going to have a very difficult ministry. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Jesus, as that prophet, when he came to this world, the Bible says in John, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Generally, Jesus was a, just a disappointment, as we mentioned before. And so this was not the Messiah that the people were expecting. He is still not the Messiah that the Jewish people are expecting. And I'll be honest with you, in our culture today, when people talk about Jesus, this is not the Jesus that most people are expecting. When you think about it. He was marred. He, his visage was, was more than any man. Very important as we see this. And like I said, these verses here, what we've just read, serve to introduce the main text of Isaiah 53. Now we look at it as only the servant's exaltation, his humiliation, but now let's look at the servant's ministry. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. As we look at this, there, we see here that he will, he will sprinkle many nations. There's actually a couple thoughts, and um, the Hebrew word for sprinkle, actually, you can actually go a couple ways with it. And I'll try to make this very simple, okay? But as we look at this, we're going to try as much as we can to look at the plain text. What does it say? When we t- think about sprinkle, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay? If we, it should go back to the time of the Torah, the books of Moses, when the priests were in the temple, the tabernacle, as they would sprinkle blood on the different elements of the, the furniture of the te- uh, tabernacle, for example. Uh, sometimes they would take, they would sprinkle water for cleansing of the priests. Um, and this is going to bode well in a couple weeks when we're going to look at how lepers were cleansed. When leper, in the middle of the book of Leviticus, almost the middle of the Torah, we're going to see how lepers were cleansed by a sprinkling, a cleansing, a purifying, if you will. And so in this, the servant, you know, verse 13, you can see the servant is here as a king. Verse 14, the servant is here as a prophet. And in verse 15, the servant is here as a priest, prophet, priest, king. By the way, those are the people who were anointed. Messiah. Interesting. So when we think about this, he shall sprinkle uh, this. So this is signifying the work of the priests. Okay? Um, and so one thought is this, that the, the servant who would be a sacrifice has now become the priest as well. It's an interesting thought. But there's also another idea is this, that the word sprinkle here can mean, what does a sprinkle happen? It's, it's kind of like a, something sprung up. Uh, they give like a spring a spring that squirts water is the idea here. And in that, it kind of astonishes or can shock you is the idea. And that's one idea, or startle someone. Nonetheless, no matter what way you go on it, what is the nations going to do when they see that? When they see and understand who the servant is, what is their reaction? The king shall shut their mouths at him. And that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that they had not heard, they shall consider. In other words, their eyes are going to be open to who this Jesus really is. The suffering servant, Israel, will wake up one day to see who the servant really is, the Messiah. One day they will realize it. One day they will look upon him whom they've pierced. And not just Israel, but to the nations, to the rest of the world as well. So this is important as we see this. The servant's work will go beyond Israel as he will also work with the nations. It's interesting here that the nations here, what they will do is that their mouths shall be stopped. They will shut their mouths. The idea is this, that the nations will one day, where they rebelled against the servant, they will now show reverence to the servant. They will be startled with awe and wonder 
of who this Messiah is. Like it says in verse 14, they, many were astonished at thee. They were kind of stopped in their tracks, like, who is this? And when Jesus comes back, when they understand who he really is, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're like, oh my, we weren't expecting that. Jesus is a surprise. He was a disappointment to many, but when you really find out who he is and what he fulfilled and how he did it, we are all stunned and shocked. Like, wow, what a savior. And as we sang earlier, hallelujah, what a savior. As we look at this verse here in verse 15 as well, Isaiah 52 verse 15 is like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he will sprinkle many nations. He will reveal himself to the nations. It'll be a shock to them. It's interesting, the end of chapter 50, uh, uh, verse 15 here, Paul mentions that in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 21, uh, that, uh, the idea that the gospel would be not limited to the Jewish people, but be spread to the Gentiles as well. Here's the idea of this, that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And for that, we can all say amen. This, is, this should excite us as well, Okay. So we kind of wrap this all up today. We look at the messianic hope, that Jesus is the messianic hope. He is the one we can believe and trust and have confidence in, that the Bible is true, that it shows us who Jesus really is and what he did for us and what he will do. Okay? But the question is, and we begin in 53 verse 1, who has believed our report? Who would have believed it? And this message has gone on. And I turn our mind's attention now when Jesus first appeared and he, he starts gathering his disciples, choosing his disciples. It says in John 1, And Andrew findeth his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which is interpreted the Christ. Later on, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets, Isaiah, did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Is the Old Testament important? Absolutely. And it has one key idea pointing us to the hope of the Messiah who will come and redeem us all. Not just to give peace on this earth that we all get along and sing Kumbaya. Okay? Sure, that'd be nice. All right? That the Vikings would actually win a Super Bowl. That'd be nice. Okay? But nonetheless, this is the idea that we would have an inner peace as well that passes all understanding. The point of this is Jesus is the messianic hope. I encourage you then to read and believe Isaiah 53. This chapter will change your life. And that's just the beginning, all right? We'll dig onto that next time.